The Appendix N Podcast, Episode 23, The Legion of Space by Jack Williamson. Welcome to the Appendix N Podcast, a Tome Show production. My name is Jeffrey Wynn. This is the show where we explore the inspirations behind Gary Gygax, a man who could see a thousand years into the future. And that is how he was able to bring us exotic vistas and alien worlds to explore in the game he helped to create, Dungeons and Dragons. Well, perhaps he couldn't really see into the future, but today we will learn about one version of the 30th century where human civilization is protected by the brave men and women of the Legion of Space. Every episode of Appendix N will feature a different story or collection of stories. My co-host, Jeff Wickstrom, and I, along with any guests who choose to accompany us on our voyage across the stars, will review the story and talk about how it may have influenced the first edition of the world's most popular role-playing game. If you would like to be part of the show, you can email the host of The Tome Show, Jeff Greiner, at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Listen to the end of the episode for a list of some upcoming stories. Before we get to the program, let us take a moment to mention our sponsor, Noble Knight, online retailer of new and out-of-print role-playing games, war games, board games, and miniatures. Since 1997, they have helped thousands of gamers from around the world save money and find exactly what they need. You can find them on the web at www.noblenight.com. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Jeff Wickstrom. Welcome back, Jeff. Always a pleasure. And we have two guests with us tonight, Jeremiah McCoy. Hi. And returning, Chris Constantine. Pleased to be here, as always. Right, and, and both of my guests are returning. Both, both Jeremiah and Chris have been on the show several times before, and we, we always have amazing discussions. Uh, tonight, we are talking about... The Legion of Space, a book by Jack Williamson. Uh, Jack Williamson, his, his actual name is John Stuart Williamson. He was born April 29th, 1908 in Arizona. He died November 10th, 2006 at the age of 98. He was often called the Dean of Science Fiction after the passing of Robert Heinlein, who I assume held the title, the, the informal title, uh, before that. Uh, as a as a young man, he read uh, amazing stories, and, and that was his gateway into science fiction. Early in his life, he was influenced by a man named Miles J. Brewer, a, a doctor who wrote science fiction, and he was also a fan of A. Merritt, another Appendix N author. Uh, he was a published author by the 1930s. Young Isaac Asimov was, was a fan of his and, and, and wrote uh, fan mail to him and was quite happy to get a letter in return. And uh, he had... Uh, Williamson had a, had a long, distinguished career. He continued to write well into his 90s. And uh, as I said, he, he died at the age of 98 in 2006. Uh, the idea for the Legion of Space uh, came to Williamson uh, when he was attending a great books course. He learned that another author, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher this name, Henrik Sinkowitz, uh, had created uh, a, a, a story by combining the Three Musketeers with Shakespeare's Falstaff in a, in a sci-fi setting, and Williamson had the great idea to do the same thing. 
Uh, and the Legion of Space was published in Astounding Stories in 1934 and was published in novel form in 1947 with some revisions, um, which, which I was relieved to learn because there's, there's a mention of World War II in this, in this story. And I, 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 had, I briefly thought that I had uh, misjudged the date of, this, of, this, of the publication of this book because we're kind of supposed to be going in uh, chronological order. Uh, but I, I believe that was probably added added after the fact. So, much much to my to my uh, relief. All right, uh, Jeff, uh, Jeremiah, Chris, uh, who wants to go first and tell me what you thought of the story? Well, I would say that it was a pretty good read for the most part. Uh, but you can definitely see that it was heavily, and I repeat, heavily influenced by at least three different sources. Of course, there were three musketeers. And I'd argue the prologue was heavily influenced by, of all things, the Edgar Rice Burroughs books. Because it almost feels like oh, a yeah. reversing of what he usually uses as a narrative device to lay down the groundwork. Additionally, uh, it was very colorful, very intense, but paradoxically very formulaic. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems like it hit all the key points. Like, the big advantage being of the, for example, uh, the princess wasn't just a treasure to be won. I would argue that she was almost a MacGuffin princess in this case, which I guess is a step up. Yeah, the story is kind of this blend 50-50 of Edgar Rice Burroughs and like early Robert Heinlein is how it seemed to me. I could see the Legion of Space fitting in with Starman Jones and um, the various other Heinlein juveniles, none of which I can think of the name of at the moment. Yeah, I've I've never read Citizen of the Galaxy. Have spacesuit will travel. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, I, I wow, spacesuit will travel. Yeah, I, that was that was actually read to me by 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 my mother. That's a great when book. I was probably mm-hmm. I think I was way too young to follow the story. <laughs> I, I, I I also uh, think it uh, draws on the 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 pulp some of the other pulps uh, of the time that. Uh, uh, maybe get la- left out of the discussion sometimes like the, the Buck Rogers serials and the, um, and the uh, Flash Gordon uh, comics. Oh, uh, I could definitely believe that. One of the things that I'm learning as we go through Appendix N is just how little I actually know about 20th century science fiction. Um, it's a little bit like trying to get across the United States with a map that just has... Um, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, and Dallas on it. Now, Jer- Jeremiah did did Buck Rogers and and Flash Gordon. They they were well established at this at this time, correct? I believe that they were contemporary. Um, okay. Yeah, they're around the same time. That it, I think it it's one of those. There are so many people writing in that particular small genre: the Dan Corbett, the Robert Heinlein, uh, sort of small here's your hero uh he's working with a, a core uh lensman is another one that uh, uh came out of this time that was a similar formula mm-hmm. uh so I, I yeah i think it's a yeah it, it it's a well-worn uh formula yeah i i i got the the my 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 thought was this this is 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 the most unabashedly pulpy thing that that we've read so far in this in this show it it is it is clearly in inspired by what came b- before it it's 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 kind of formulaic but it 
it really doesn't doesn't mind. It 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 revels in what it what it is, and it is it is a story about a a young idealistic square jawed hero going off to fight the bug eyed aliens with laser rays and uh, silver rocket ships. I mean, he he is D'Artagnan. Mm-hmm. To be clear, well, I don't think anybody would be writing a novel that included Falstaff if they were trying to, you know, demonstrate some gritty psychological realism. <laughs> it's true. Indeed. Now, Fal- I'm I'm showing my ignorance here. Falstaff is one of Shakespeare's plays that I've never read and don't know anything oh. about. What is what is Falstaff? Falstaff is a character from Very one of cool. Shakespeare's plays that I've never read. I think he actually uh, Henry the Fourth. Yeah, I, and I think he, he shows was, up in uh, Henry the Fifth too as well. In Henry the Fifth, yeah, he was yeah. a. I do know that he was a hugely popular character um, in Shakespeare's time. Everybody loved Falstaff. Okay. Uh, Queen Elizabeth loved Falstaff so much that she asked Shakespeare to write a sequel about Falstaff. Um, and Shakespeare did The Merry Wives of Windsor, which I have seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in The Merry Wives of Windsor, he's, he's basically uh, Giles uh, Habula. Wow, I wonder, I wonder if that's the first uh, recurring character in, in, in fiction. Maybe, Pro- maybe that was the first fandom. Probably not. It depends on how you count it, I think. Yeah, I mean, certainly some of the Greek uh, dramas had recurring characters, and they were about 1,500 years before that. So. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, heck, in the original... Rings within Jason rings. Within the, Jason within the Argonauts, you had Hercules, who basically appeared in that after his 12 tales. Yeah, but that's not a case of the original author going back. Uh, but at the, about the same time as uh, Shakespeare was Don Quixote. Yeah, uh, Cervantes wrote the first book of Don Quixote, and it was hugely popular. There was Don Quixote fan fiction that other people wrote, and he didn't like that other people had written Don Quixote fan fiction, so he wrote Don Quixote Part Two in uh, 1615. That's amazing. All right, so getting getting back to the book we're actually supposed to be talking about. All right, so the the Legion of Space, uh, like like with Burroughs, starts with a. Uh, with with a frame story, and Wikipedia actually suggests that uh, this particular uh, device might have been inspired by uh, the the Moon Men. I think I don't, I don't actually have the page in front of me, but it's it's one of the Burroughs stories that we are probably not going to read on this story because we've had quite enough of Burroughs. Um, but uh, we we are introduced to a a doctor and his patient, and this patient is able to see into the future. And he is able to see a thousand years into the future, and he knows that his descendants are going to discover space travel, and they are going to lead humanity to the stars, and humanity is going to rule the solar system, and his his family is going to become emperors. I, I believe his his I, I believe this this man's name is Delmar, but somewhere along the line, his descendants change their name to Ulnar. And they they become emperors, and then they become tyrants, and then they are eventually deposed. And that's when we get to the 30th century, where the Legion of Space uh, basically uh, patrols the solar system and protects justice. 
and uh, the the political ruling body is called the Green Hall. And for some reason, uh, the 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 Ulnars are still allowed to be commanders of of the Green Hall. Uh, and they, they they have formed this secret faction, unsurprisingly, called the Purple Hall, to take back the Empire. Yeah, it's a little like the uh, Supreme Commander of NATO being Chip Hitler. Yeah, I I I think, uh, uh, or or possibly a member of the the U.S. military command structure being also uh, a, an Arnold. Um, <laughs> you know, but uh, no, I, I, I think actually the thing that bugged me the most about this story so far is is actually the framing mechanism. That framing mechanism is just bizarre. It's it's almost dreamlike. It really doesn't seem to have much to do with the the rest of the story. It's yeah. And so much so that I wonder why Jack Williamson decided to include it. It seems like a very um, a very different piece. Maybe, Maybe just because it was it was convention. Who I mean, who can really say, right? Indeed. Well, I think originally it was released as a serial. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, maybe he thought he needed to ha- add uh, more structure so the serial fit together better. I don't know. I mean, it's it's possible that the frame story appeared as like a boilerplate before every chapter that that was released. Maybe. Uh, maybe it was a promo, kind of like the idea that I'm going to tell you this awesome story next week. And here's my setup in order to get you guys interested here, almost like a commercial for all intents and purposes. Yeah, so maybe. I mean, he definitely wrote it with the with the goal of getting it published uh, and getting it published specifically in what astounding. Yeah. So maybe the only person who can really answer that question is the uh, the editor of Astounding at the time. I mean, it it it's a pretty good hook. I mean, I, I mean, it's possible that if he started it out, you know, Lord of the Rings style, telling you that it's the 30th century and and laying down, you know, lay, laying down all the world building up up front, he he might have lost readers, but instead he inter- introduces you to two relatable characters, a a doctor and a former soldier, and and those characters take you into the story. Might be. Sort of. Uh, I, I I think I will reserve judgment on it based on whether or not I go at, forward and read some of the later stories to see if they also include the framing mechanism and it becomes more important. But if as a one-off story read, that that framing mechanism seemed completely divorced from the rest of the the tale mm-hmm. and style, feeling the characters don't show back up. It's mm-hmm. just sort of weird it i've i discovered when i was looking uh, jack williamson up on wikipedia that i've read another of his stories uh with folded hands which i liked quite a bit and which was a lot more similar to the prologue of legion of space than it was to legion of space itself in terms of its uh, its feel i think we can we can also note that this was that this was very early in williamson's career i mean he he continued to write for decades and decades after this, and I'm sure he he only got better as as he went. Um, it's it's uh, it's it, it remains to be seen if we will revisit Jack Williamson later in this in this series, but maybe maybe we we will, and we can we we can compare his 
later works to this one. All right, so we've we've got our hero, John Starr. Sometimes who, whose whose name is also John Ulnar, and they keep switching back and forth. Yeah, that was confusing. I, Basically, I, it's a, sorry. Yeah, they. I, I don't think they really explain why he's got two names. I think very early on, uh, Williamson says that Star is is a is a title, but, but doesn't really explain why why that is. And at, at the very end of the book, he officially changes his name to John Star because he doesn't want to be associated with the Ulnars, and because they're the bad guys. But at the beginning of the book, it, it's unclear if anybody knew that. Yeah, it's. I mean, well, it's not his decision to change his name. It gets done by the Green Hall for him, okay, and as an honor. Um, but yeah, at the very beginning, it says, you know, this is John Starr. Uh, everybody calls him John Olnar, but we're going to call him John Starr because that's what the Green Hall said. Which is just, it seems almost dreamlike, uh, because all through all through the book, he's constantly being addressed as John Olnar and referring to himself as John Olnar, and the narr- uh, the narrator, so to speak, is. Uh, always referring to him as John Starr, which, like I said, it just seems strange. It's think, an odd choice, right? Yeah, I, I, I think, I think he, because he, he, his name was changed to John Starr. He is historically known as John Starr, and this, this narrator is narrating from some point after the events of this, of this novel. So to the public, but he's narrating from a thousand years prior to the events of the novel. Right, nominally, this is what Delmar is, according to the prologue. This is what Delmar is saying. And why is Delmar deciding to obey the edicts of the Green Hall when talking about his um, unknown number of many greats, grand uh, grandchild or nephew? I forget which. I think we're probably thinking about this way too much. Yeah, I think it would have made a lot more sense. If they kept him Ulnar until the very end, then changed him over to Star for future books would have made things a lot cleaner. I, I think it's also safe to, to say that uh, this, the, 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 the returning phrase I keep coming back to when thinking about this story is style over substance. There, a lot of the choices they make are stylistic uh, as far as, you know, how to do the, the storytelling and, you know, how he's addressed in the narration as opposed to the character uh, interactions. But the story doesn't really justify the style. It's just, here's a style of telling that story. So basically a square peg into a round hole when it comes to narrative. Yeah. So John Starr is, is, is your typical young, idealistic, square-jawed action hero. Um, I mean, I, I really got the, the Spaceman Spiff vibe, the, the Duck Dodgers in the 21st and a half century or 20 whatever whatever century it is no, i understand yeah like mm-hmm. it almost felt like an old school melodrama because they made him so squeaky clean in spite of his actual you know his transition over and despite the fact that he had comes from noble blood like as one of the reasons he gets his commission ultimately despite being so very very young i i i actually imagined like even even though i was listening to the audiobook i i actually imagined him having the voice of of fry from uh, Futurama because he's so stupid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and he just he just he just robotically follows follows orders. Uh, 
and 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 then I I tried to imagine which uh, which Futurama characters like all the characters would be, and and then I that 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 just just got got silly. So we've 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 got uh, John Starr, our our square jawed action hero, and we are introduced to uh, his three companions. Um, J J Kalam, Hal, Sam Samdu, yeah, and yeah. Giles Habibula. Mm-hmm. Who steals the show? And yeah, uh, Giles by far has the most uh, personality. Uh, you can you can tell that uh, Williamson had had a lot of fun writing him. He's he's the one who's supposedly based on Falstaff. Um, <laughs> well, the big difference is instead of being a cowardly knight like in the original Henry the Fourth, Giles Habibula basically was press gang due to some crime he committed a long time ago in his youth into the Legion. But they never exactly reveal exactly what it was, and uh, except sh- that he was a, a, a lock, a, 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 pick, a master of picking locks. So oh, he no. mentions knocking over a lamp at some point. I got the impression that it was a burglary that went wrong, yeah. but you know, for something that he he never explains, he sure talks about it a lot. Yeah, he is. He's he's basically this this wheezing old fat guy who is constantly talking about food he he can eat six times the amount of a of a normal man and and drink the uh, uh, similar similar amounts of wine and uh basically whenever williamson gets a chance he will he will interject several paragraphs of uh giles habibula commenting on whatever situation is is at at hand uh, oftentimes repeating himself and using the words mortal, blessed, uh, for life's sake. Yeah. Uh, what else? What else does does he wine. use? Wine. Wine. Very much so. <laughs> yes. A lot of wine. Oh, and complaining about the actual situation to such a point that it almost becomes irritating because he basically says, "I'm old. I'm fat. Why am I here?" Etc. And invariably, when somebody goes, "Yeah, but we're going to go do this anyway," he goes, "Well, I guess." I, you know, for for comradeship or whatever reason, he he has to go. He knows that he's going to go. Everybody around him knows that he's going to go. He just makes a show of making the complaint. Yeah, and he's always referred to as Giles Habibula, uh, in the same way that Jay Kalam is always called Jay Kalam and not just Jay. Mm-hmm. And Hal Samdu is Hal Samdu, never Hal, never Samdu, always Hal Samdu, which is another one of those weird stylistic quirks that makes me feel occasionally when I'm reading this like I've uh, read reading something that has slipped through from another dimension. It just seems it's an odd, uh, an odd little note. They, yeah. they they actually sound like Star Wars names, like Hal Hal Samdu especially. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I read on Wikipedia that that Sam Du is actually supposed to be du, Dumas, just the letters rearranged. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, basically, Jay Kalam is stern leader guy. He and, has about half a personality. Right. right. If you He's accept, premise, I think it's yeah, also with- if you accept the premise that. Um, John Starr has a personality and Giles Habibula has a personality. Then you give Jay Kalam about half a personality and Hal Samdu does not get any personality. Well, I, I, I basically read Jay Kalam as Joe Friday, no, no nonsense, get, get the job done kind, kind of guy. 
and Hal Samdu is Ben Grimm. He's he's large. He's strong. Um, I mean, Ben Grimm was not mute. No. Yeah. Like how like it only has a number of lines in it, and Jay Kalam seems to get most of his personality from the first scene he appears in when he's playing the music before mm-hmm. he gets lots off to prison. I, yeah, I, I think that the the thing I, uh, about Kalam, he is the most like actually one of the musketeers. He is the most like one uh, uh, Athos mm-hmm. uh, uh, from the Three Musketeers, uh, who is also that very much firm, decisive guy and it, that comes off as not having a lot of personality when you have characters that are like uh giles and uh, in, in the story everybody seems like they have less personality well how sam do when we're introduced to him uh john star is going to his apartment to i think to arrest him actually mm-hmm. uh, and he answers the door and he's wearing some kind of like commander field marshal super general uniform uh, and he's like oh hey john star or john ulnar take out check out check out my uh, check out my new uniform doesn't it look cool and john is like yeah well i didn't realize you had been promoted to you know super high grand admiral and he was like well i haven't been yet but i want to have the uniform ready which i thought was an indicator that hal samdu was going to be you know funny Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that's that scene right there is more than half of the lines that he gets in the entire book. Yeah, I, I think he was probably intended to be the Porthos Absolutely. analog, uh, and they just replace Aramis with Falstaff for their icons here, um, which is fine. Uh, <laughs> well, I think what happened is they basically were hoping that you would just get the analog and get around most of the storytelling procedure here. But unfortunately, the side effect is they did less with those two characters, especially when compared to Giles. And, you know, you could definitely see a few scenes that would have been awesome just with a little bit of extra retuning with these characters if they actually played them as the Athos and Porthos analogs that they're supposed to be. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, Jake Kalam has a few things to do, but Hal Samdu feels like he could very easily be excised from the story entirely. Yeah, his big scene is when he's lifting everybody in that one scene, which we're getting ahead of ourselves. He's 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 the the strong guy. Jay Jay is is the, is the leader guy. Hal is the strong guy. Giles is the comic relief, and John Starr is the is the innocent young. Well, not not innocent, but I, idealistic young hero who uh, follows in their in their footsteps and 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 seeks to become, you know a. A, a great hero of of of, of the legion like d'artagnan um so the story here is that uh john ulnar slash star is being assigned to guard uh this woman what's what's the woman's name aldori anthar yes aldori anthar uh and Alidore Anthar has the secret of Aka, which is how it was pronounced in the in the audiobook. I don't know how you guys were pronouncing it in in your heads. It's basically A K K A. It's it's an acronym for something. We're never quite told what it is, but Aka is 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 actually knowledge of how to build a really powerful super weapon that can basically defeat uh, anybody. And we, we learn uh, later that 
uh, a car was invented by a by by some scientists during the tyrannical reign of the emperor Ulnars. These these scientists were sent to Pluto as political prisoners, and they devised this this weapon. And simply simply hearing about it is is what caused the the, the emperors to abdicate the throne and cede power to the Green Hall. So this this weapon is pretty bad stuff. And um, apparently the the secret has been has been passed down to this to this woman, and the weapon is so terrible that that she won't tell the secret to anybody, and she doesn't want to want to build uh, uh, the weapon because it's so it's so terrible. So she just lives on Mars in this secluded fortress, and she's she's guarded by these uh, by by this small group of group of people. And John uh, is is assigned to the command of Eric Ulnar, who is his distant uh, relative. Um, I, th- I think we learned early on that John is an is a, is an is an orphan. We're not mm-hmm. we're not quite sure how uh, Adam Ulnar and Eric Ulnar are related to uh, John. Um, so, so Eric Eric Ulnar is our is our first villain, and right away I was I was like, oh, this is is an anime, because he is described as effeminate, girly. He's he's got long blonde hair, uh, he's he's got a a weak chin, uh, and of course this is this is 1930s pulp. So if if you are girly and weak looking, and you're a man, you're clearly a a, a bad guy. Because men should be square-jawed and rugged and tough. I think one of the more annoying scenes, actually, is when uh, John first meets him and describes him and, 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 and explains his disappointment at visually seeing how, uh, you know, inappropriate this guy is just because his chin is weak. And therefore, he is, uh, you know, oh, not worthy of the name, basically. Right. It's it's extremely yeah. It's it's extremely offensive and problematic. Uh, but I, m- right away, my my mind went to like anime, like Voltron, um, like like that that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, you know, in in anime, the the Bishonen is is maybe not not as offensive because it's that's that's a type of beauty that they have over there that's acceptable for men. But mm-hmm. here here it's definitely implied that effeminate plus man equals equals wrong and therefore evil. Um, and I... uh, Eric J- J- John right away distrusts Eric but still follows his commands and he he likes his other three companions um but he's he still uh locks them up when Eric tells him to yeah the i mean the very first first chapter of this story the tone really seems to be all over the place it's not really until they get to the alien world that i feel like it settles down a bit but uh, again, we're getting ahead of ourselves in mentioning the alien world. So forget, forget you heard me say that. Right. Well, I think I think we we, we learn almost right away that uh, Eric is an an explorer, and he's actually the first person to 
lead an expedition out of the solar system, and they went to Barnard's Star, which is which is the first place that uh, that that humans have discovered an an Earth-like planet. In Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, when Arthur Dent and Ford Prefect get picked up by the Vogons, before they get kicked out the airlock, Ford Prefect explains to Arthur that with any luck, they'll be able to uh, get the Vogons to take them as far as Barnard's Star, from which, he says, they can get to anywhere. Which might be a reference to the Legion of Space. I suppose it's possible. Right, so it's, it's, it's mentioned that uh, Eric has led an expedition to Barnard's Star, and... Uh, it it did not go very well. Uh, the the men who did come back were were crazy and were stricken with some kind of flesh eating uh, virus, and they they had to be locked up in in an asylum. And they were raving about uh, terrible monsters. And uh, almost right away, as as soon as as John gets to his post on Mars guarding this woman, uh, a a strange alien spaceship. Uh, lands, uh, murders the commander of the outpost, and Eric says, well, it clearly must have been the the other soldiers here that murdered the com- the commander of the outpost. John locked them up. I'm not, not a traitor at, at all. It, 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 it wasn't me. Uh, oh, and, and, and at some point, the, the woman comes to John and says, you must not trust uh, Eric. And John says, what are you talking about? He's, he's an ulnar, and he's my relative, and he's a great explorer. And even though he's effeminate, and I don't really, really like him. <laughs> if I had to say anything, you felt a different way. What I kept getting was a melodrama. This was Snively Whiplash convincing Dudley Do-Right to lock him up because it's his duty. And got that similar melodrama feel where you could almost practically see the cackling villain going to the side and saying, now he'll do what I want. And it, and it's even more boring than it sounds. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. it's it's definitely the 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 plot at at this point is is very plain and uncomplicated. I I just found it, it ridiculous that um, John right away doesn't trust Eric, and right away he likes his three companions, and yet he still does what Eric says, and still insists to this to this woman that uh, Eric is his relative and, and an Ulnar, and therefore he's trustworthy. Um, but anyways, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, basically, uh, Eric, or sorry, John, John locks up uh, the, the, the only three other people on, on the base that, that, that are, are loyal. And um, uh, what's your face? I can't even remember the, the, the woman's name. Aladori Anthar. <laughs> right. Aladori comes to him and says, you, you fool, what have, have you done? Eric is with the aliens. And John says, what are you talking about? No, 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 he's not. And Aladori says, look, he's right out there standing right next to the alien spaceship. And John says, oh, I'm sure there's a reasonable explanation for this. I'll just go out and, and, and talk to him. And he does. And Eric says, John, you're a fool. I'm a traitor. I'm with the aliens. We're gonna take over over Earth. Uh, I had hoped. <laughs> clue by four, right there. <laughs> yeah, basically. And so the he he basically gets aboard the alien spaceship. Uh, he he somehow he somehow manages to grab uh, uh, the woman 
on 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 his his way and makes his 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 escape. And so John uh, gets the other three soldiers uh, out of out of prison, and they're like, "We have to do something, but we're stranded here on on Mars in this abandoned fortress in the middle of the desert." Uh, eventually, they 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 radio for help, and who should come to help them but the commander of the Legion of Space, uh, Adam Ulnar who is Eric's uncle and also John's relative and also a bad guy. And I just, I want to emphasize this. The story is not nearly as exciting or tense or dramatic as Jeff is making it sound. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would agree with that assessment. Um, I, I, I will say that actually I did like the character of Adam Alnar. Uh, you know, for for what he is. I mean, the the story is not great, but I like the character. He was very much the Cardinal Richelieu in this particular mix. Okay, so here's the thing, though. Yeah. Right. Once upon a time, there was the the Empire, right, and it was bad, and yeah. the Imperial color was purple, and due to the power of Akka, man was able to throw off the Imperial shackles and created the Green Hall, right, and thereby then somehow. Making uh, then somehow, the um, Adam Olnar, uh, despite being basically Chip Hitler, uh, becomes head of the Legion of Space. And on the moon of Phobos, um, which somehow has a Earth normal gravity, uh, which I thought was kind of cute, on the moon of Phobos, he has his private estate uh, where he has the, the Purple Hall. Right, He has built... A, uh, a building which is an exact replica of the Green Hall, except that it's A, purple, and B, 10% larger in all dimensions. <laughs> and and, and I, this is not a secret. This is not, it's not like the, the, the incredible secret of uh, Adam Olnar's Phobos estate where nobody is allowed to go. This is like the, the Legion of Space equivalent of like Skywalker Ranch or San Simeon or Xanadu and Citizen Kane. It's, um, it's, it's, it's known. It almost feels like reconstitution after the Civil War where basically instead of punishing the Purple Hall, they basically just slapped him down and tried to reunite with him after the Civil War. And as a result, we get things like a big ass purple hall on Phobos. I, I, I like, I, I have to say, purple is a good choice of colors. Imperial uh, purple, sure. Green is the complementary color to purple, so you can see how, yeah. how green is the opposite of purple. Purple is the opposite of green. That's all. I, I think yellow oh, is, cool. the, is the opposite of purple, but. I'm just glad they're color coded for our convenience so we know who the good guys and the bad guys are. Well, they're complementary. Like the Joker wears green and purple. Yeah. As does the Riddler. Mm-hmm. As they're, does Doctor Doom. As does the Incredible Hulk. As do uh, the Green Goblin. Most supervillains, basically. Like villains, villains yeah. tend to wear secondary colors like purple, green, and orange, whereas heroes tend to wear primary colors like red, blue, and yellow. How many uh, supervillains in orange can you name? Thing. The Thing is not a supervillain. The Thing, yeah. Um, Point taken. Lex Luthor. Lex Luthor wore a green and purple battlesuit. Not but he orange. also wore a lot of orange. Okay, too. so orange when did he wear is orange? not a big color, but, but green and purple definitely. There's basically two versions of Lex Luthor. There's the, the, the businessman Lex Luthor who's wearing a black suit, and there's green and purple battle suit Lex Luthor. I, don't, I can't think of an occasion where Lex Luthor has walked around in orange and that's been his thing. Uh, I know there's, there's an orange lantern. 
<sighs> and he is villainous. Hyperion in, side, in Squadron Supreme is uh, he's a he's an evil version of Superman, um, and he, as I recall, wears orange. So so orange is is not a big villain color, but but purple and green definitely definitely are. I'm sure this is why people tune in to this podcast. If I'm going to get pedantic about something, and <laughs> Lord knows it's not going to be Legion of Space. Um. <laughs> All right, so so Adam Adam Olnar, uh, it, for for the genre that we're in, seems to be a relatively complicated villain. And 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 I I say this because we're we're talking about a a genre where so far the plots have not been very complicated. Uh, Adam Adam is is a is is a second villain in this story who is working towards different goals from the first villain, and by the end of the story he is actually working against the first the first villain Eric. Eric wants to ally with these aliens from Barnard Star, the the Medusa, and Adam think, think thinks that's a dumb idea uh, because the the aliens are totally going to wreck everything. Whereas whereas Eric thinks that um, he can he can get the Medusa's help, and then he's just going to conquer the Medusa. And then he's just going to rule everything, and and Adam thinks that Eric is incompetent and can't, and, and that will that will never work. And he was proven right. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Adam sort of gives J- uh, John Starr the the Darth Vader speech: uh, "Join me, and together we can rule the galaxy." And John says, "I'll never join you," and is is locked in prison and escapes. And uh, with with his three companions, they they manage to capture uh, Adam Olnar, and and for the rest, uh, for most of the rest of the story, they they are in control of the Purple Dream, and and Adam is their is their prisoner. And so the the rest of the first half of the story is is our heroes take the Purple Dream to Pluto. Uh, where they, they they have to basically outfit the ship for the journey to Barnard Star because the the the, the aliens with with Eric have taken uh, Princess Peach to uh, Barnard's star and they're they're going to mount an expedition to rescue her. So that's that's the first half of the story. It takes place in in the solar system. They're they're evading uh, the rest of the Legion who thinks that they are pirates. And they're, they're, they they think that they are rescuing uh, Adam Adam Olnar, who's been unjustly kidnapped, not realizing that 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 he's a he's a traitor. Uh, there's yeah. there's a brief episode on Pluto where they where they have to trick the commander of the Pluto outpost to to get their their supplies. And there's no time to explain everything. You know, they're they're just too much. There's too much of a time crunch. Right. Mm-hmm. Basically, what happens? They get in trouble. They squeak up by the skin of their teeth by doing something fantastic, and they keep on going towards the planet in some way, shape, or form. Right. Uh, during during this this uh, period, they they travel through hyperspace, basically. So we we learn that hyperspace is a, is a thing in this mm-hmm. in this universe. Uh, I think Williamson describes it as traveling around space. Okay. Uh, better than taking a cannon from Earth to Venus. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think what is what does he call the the engines the 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 geodynes geodynes, geodynes right. yeah. yes 
And and Which does is he actually ever, a cool name? Does he ever like attempt to make up an explanation for how they work, or is it just science with an exclamation point? I think there's a pretty big exclamation point on that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, but, so you know, I, I I do feel I should point out something. We may have been reading a revised version of this story. The reason I say that is he talks about the moon Sharon in the story, but the moon Sharon wasn't discovered until 1978. Wikipedia does say that between the original publication in Astounding Stories and its publication in novel form that the text was revised. That's why we have a reference to Pearl Harbor in in the frame story. Sure, but uh, even the the initial publication of the novel was in the 1940s, 30 years before they discovered Sharon. Interesting. Uh, Interesting indeed. I have a copy. Uh, the copy of Legion of Space that I read is the Galaxy Science Fiction reprint from 1950. Uh-huh. Uh, and in that, Pluto does have a moon, but the name of the moon is Cerebus. Ah. The impression that I got was that uh, he, Jack Williamson figured Pluto might have a moon, came up with a plausible sounding name for it, and moved on. Because for some reason he wanted to have this be set on uh, the tiny desolate moon of Pluto. Well, this it, chap- did rather did, than uh, his- did uh, whatever whatever satellite just passed by Pluto? Did 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 it pass by Sharon also? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Took some photos of it. Good. Uh, it uh, yeah, Pluto has uh, five known moons: Sharon, Styx, Nix, Carabos, and Hydra. Hail Hydra. Glad you said it. So anyways, so that's that's a bit of trivia. Awesome. Mm-hmm. All right. So, yes. So the most of the rest of the story takes place uh, in, uh, in in and around uh, Barnard's star and, and the planet orbiting Barnard's star. Uh, this planet has do, what does does the planet have, have have a name or it's just it's just the planet. I don't recall it ever being called anything but just the planet. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this planet has a number of, of defenses. There's a, a ring of pain around the planet, and then the planet itself, its, its atmosphere is this poisonous red gas. Um, and I, I think the, the ring of pain, are we ever clear on what exactly that, that is, or it's just, it's just a defense mechanism? Magic, that... magic force field. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they 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 try and come up with the explanation that somehow radiation that uh, causes molecular bonds to start breaking down or something silly. Yeah, and it and, basically makes everybody look like ghosts. Yeah, and and we're 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 also told time time and again that the previous explorers that came through this way, like they went through this stuff and none of them survived. But John Starr and and his companions they go through this stuff and they survive through what appears to be nothing more than sheer will. They Plot do it shield. at super high speed compared to how the previous expedition at, did. At, at some point, they hide inside a nebula. And, and I'm, I'm, not, I, yep. I'm not 100% sure what nebulas actually are, but I'm pretty sure they're not how Williamson describes them. Big oh, fog no. banks in space. <laughs> yeah, it felt almost like a freaking asteroid belt, almost but, like uh, a flashback there, okay. more than a nebula. The the fact that it um, is reverse entropy and that it uh, 
uh, is constantly producing matter and uh, that uh, the laws of physics break down in the space. No. Nebula is also known as the Devil's Blowhole. <laughs> uh, I, I, I mean, seriously. The Bermuda Triangle. A nebula is just a cloud of ionized gas in space, and it, if you're inside one, you'll barely notice. Next thing you're next thing you're going to tell me is that Phobos has point uh, zero 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 seven uh, Earth gravities rather than one, and I don't know what to tell you, man, because it clearly has normal gravity. There's a whole chapter set on Phobos. Well, again, again, science of the time. I mean, he's he's clearly following the the Burroughs model for Mars and Venus. Mars has an atmosphere and is a, is a desert. Venus is described as a as a jungle planet. So. And I, I, I have to admire him using uh, the name Barnard Star because it's a new star relatively by that point. I, th- I think it was discovered 15 years earlier that they actually had the the, the star actually named. So. And it, it, it's actually called Barnard's Wandering Star in the story. And I, I, I guess, I guess it, it had like an unusual movement pattern that astronomers at the time could not explain. And, and in, in the story, it, it's, it's the, the explanation is that the, the aliens who live around Barnard's star have basically turned it into, into a mobile star. Like it's, it's their, like, and, and they use it to tow their planet through the galaxy, conquering other planets because their planet has run out of resources. All right, let, let's, let's talk about the, the aliens because they're actually kind of cool. I mean, they've they've got these big spherical spaceships with weird spidery tentacles coming coming out of them. Like they almost remind me of giant iron be- beholders or something. The aliens and the and especially the alien world are absolutely very clearly the reason that this story is on the appendix in list. I wanted to say that the Medusae are, are, are evidence that Jack Williamson read at the Mountains of Madness and was like, hey, that sounds cool, and just sort of copied over uh, elder things and kind of spiced them up a bit with uh, five-part five radial symmetry instead of three. But then I discovered that while At the Mountains of Madness was written several years before Legion of Space, it was not published until a few years after, so that's not possible. Well, yeah. and it, uh, I, I think uh, the other thing that it reminded me of in a more modern context was uh, Babylon 5. The, uh, the bad guys in Babylon 5, uh, the shadows, the, the description of the ships in, in this book reminded me of the, the, the spidery-like ships of, uh, of the shadows in uh, Babylon 5. And that may not have been a, 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 you know, an accident, the guy who created that show is a huge uh classic sci-fi nerd so well they i I think when they were described i i got the impression of giant flying jellyfish well the exact terms are elephant-sized four eyes flying jellyfish with hundreds of tentacles so basically it was a giant blob with multi-eyes in order to do so here like uh i believe jeff was bringing up the concept that might have been almost inspiration of the abolith but I don't know. We'll just see how that goes. Yeah, I, I, I kind of got beholders. I, I kind of got, got grell, because yeah. the grell are, are very jellyfish-like. Yeah, I said Abolith because Abolith is the first like weird, crazy D&D monster that popped into my head. Um, the first thing with tentacles mm. and 
weird powers that is not that is obviously not derived from folklore. Well, these yeah. these things aren't aren't psychic, right? As as far as we're told in this in this story. No, but they communicate by radio waves and they can fly. Mm-hmm. So yeah. close enough in my book. Avalanche yeah, don't, don't fly, that they are. do they? they? They swim. They can fly. But, oh, can they? Okay. Yeah. But no, I think that the, the, the Aboleth is as good an analog as any. I think that uh, uh, a, a lot, one thing that a lot of people miss out on early D&D is there was a lot of sci-fi elements in early D&D. Um, wasn't, wasn't there one point where basically everything had psionics? Uh, there, the psionics count comes out of the, the fact that there was a science fiction uh, element, but uh, uh, the uh, there's a line of uh, modules based off of the old Blackmore setting in uh, that uh, Dave Arneson came up with, mm-hmm. uh, that are the characters travel back in time to the time of Blackmore before the world is destroyed by black uh, terrible machines that uh, Blackmore has and you can go to a temple uh, uh, to run by aliens that was actually a spaceship and I mean these are things that are actually part of classic D&D so I mean uh, yeah, well the uh, the first the module in that line Temple of the Frog was a remake of the what's I think was the very first Dungeons and Dragons module that was published uh, where the Dungeon was an alien uh, research lab where the monsters were genetically engineered frog monsters, and the big bad guy was an alien in power armor. Yeah, and and everyone knows, you know, expedition to the to the to the barrier peaks. I mean, that's that that's I think more famous than than all the ones that you that you guys mentioned. But yeah, I think expedition to the barrier peaks kind of had the effect of cementing D anD D as not having ray guns in it actually because it sort of created this cordoned off area where the ray guns worked hmm. mm-hmm. and prior to that you know ray guns could just show up in the in the loot they are Pretty in plausible. the fifth edition uh, dungeon masters guide third edition too yeah jeff mm-hmm. why can't i have ray guns I, are you asking me yeah Take all the ray guns you want, man. Excellent. I will. Please. Write them down. 50,000 ray guns under inventory. You know, you know what? I'm I treat no encumbrance. I, I, is, is this the first story we've, we've done on this show with, with like an actual honest to gosh ray gun? Like, I'm, I feel I, like the, uh, the Barsoom stuff had yeah. ray guns. The uh, Black Martians presence. used funny weapons that basically were ray guns. Yeah, okay. But yeah, the 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 ray guns in, in in this one basically like ignite the air, and like you 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 fire them once, and then they're then they're then they're useless, and they but they but they kill a lot of people with with one with one blast. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the use of those guns actually seemed kind of weird to me, as if they were intended to not be used inside an atmosphere or something. Because the impression that I got was that the guns were designed to be fired more than once, but the black back blast was such that the guns melted when you shot them. Mm-hmm. All right. So, anyways, we we get to this alien planet, and we're we're told the the atmosphere is this poisonous red gas that will drive you crazy and eat your flesh. 
but it, it works quicker on some people than others. It turns out <laughs> that the aliens uh, quit pumping poison into their atmosphere when they decided to leave the planet. Uh, okay. So, okay, at the I, point, I somehow... so at the point where our where our player characters are trekking across the planet, the amount of poison gas in the atmosphere is low enough that all it does is uh, give them rashes. I, okay. I did like the uh, explanation for what the gas was originally for, which was to keep the air from freezing. Yeah, yeah. we're 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 told the planet's very cold. Uh, I I must have missed that that explana- explanation earlier, Jeff, because I I was wondering how they were crossing an entire continent and not immediately dying. Yeah, it doesn't get explained until after the, the fact. At the time, they're just like, "Hey, we survived this hour. Hope we don't go crazy in the next hour." And that mm-hmm. goes on for a while. Right. Mm-hmm. And eventually, so they stop thinking they, about it. They arrive uh, on the planet. They they crash into a yellow ocean. Uh, they they're they're forced to leave uh, Adam Olnar on on the ship. They 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 have a few conversations where where Adam basically explains, "Look, I just wanted to be emperor again. I didn't want the death of all of humanity. So I'm I'm willing to work with you guys, but I'm not going to go out there and risk my life on this on this hopeless quest because this is a death planet." And s- yeah, it really contrasts with Jabs Habibula, who's basically having a panic attack and then goes anyway. Whereas the Adam, basically, despite being prim and proper, he's the one that ends up ultimately being the coward in that situation here by not going out like fearless adventurers. Well, yeah, Giles Habibula is a hell of a guy. What have you ever done? So, right. So, <laughs> not, not, nothing personal. I'm sorry. That came across as more combative than I meant for it to. Yeah. Last time I checked, I've not been in a space opera recently. I'm sure that if I myself were in a spaceship at the bottom of an ocean full of poisonous water, above which was, as far as I knew, an atmosphere full of poisonous air, and it was inhabited entirely by monsters, and the object of my quest were on literally the other side of the planet. I'm sure that I would probably want to just stay in my stateroom also. Can I do uh, that logic? Uh, yeah, I, I, I will say that, uh, you know, in, in his defense, he did not uh, immediately eat his shoes because he was hungry. <laughs> <laughs> so, there is some balance here. He's got that over Giles and Bibula. Yeah. yeah. I guess it's just context. Yeah. <laughs> So they they crash on this planet and we're we're told the water is yellow, the sky is is red and and basically it's it's nothing but but monsters until they get to the city of the of the Medusa. So so first our heroes have to swim ashore and fight uh sea monsters and then they have to cross a continent which we're we're told that this continent itself is the size of the entire planet Earth. Um, so I, I'm I'm guessing the 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 land area is is, is I guess the size of the circ- circumference of of the Earth. It's a hike of several weeks. We can definitely right. confirm mm-hmm. that much. It's it, it's a long journey over over mountains and through forests during which they battle. Lots of monsters, and finally they they get to this big city, this this big black city, which is not made of iron because we're told iron does not exist on the planet. 
Uh, they, they have to sneak into the city, and there's there's no roads or walkways because the monsters can fly. So why would they build convenient roads and walkways? Yeah, they have doors all over the place at any given elevation. Um, terrible, non-Euclidean geometry, I'm sure. And and I'm really just skipping ahead here because this, I mean, it's it's very it's very pulpy. There's there's lots of of monsters and actions and getting captured and and escaping again, but none of it really stands out as particularly interesting. Yeah, and the the main thing I found particularly interesting is they when they got captured and they got put in there, they actually ran into a stark raving Looney Tune by the name of Eric Ulnar, who was basically had been torturing the princess, uh, Princess MacGuffin, for lack of a better term. And was basically acting as a collaborator at this point. He had basically crossed the moral event horizon in this situation here. Oh, and and Eric had been tortured him, him himself. Like he was he was forced to torture the to torture the princess. The contrast between Eric Oldar, who is who collaborates with the aliens, completely betrays humanity and is tortured to madness by the Medusae, and Adam Olnar, who wanted to be emperor of the world, made some bad choices, and is content to sit in his little stateroom in the crashed ship. Uh, that makes the again, I just want to say that makes the story sound a lot more interesting and well written than it is. <laughs> Because it seems like that should be good, right? It seems like that should be good. This I, is I, not good. It's not. I, I still contend that Adam Alnar is essentially Richelieu. Uh, that's who he's supposed to be. Who is sort of a respectable bad guy in the Three Musketeers, and in, in this case, Adam is the respectable bad guy in this in Legion of Space. He's he's a bad guy. He sort of accepts that everybody's going to see him as a bad guy, but he has some respectable qualities. Eric is just, uh, you know, we need the weakest uh, stereotype we could possibly throw. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so Eric's uh, big idea to to ally himself with the Medusae and then betray them and then rule over both races uh, clearly has not gone very very well. The the Medusae have. Uh, captured Eric and basically reduced him to this this golem-like state where he's he's just sniveling and crying all all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they so our our heroes rescue the princess. Uh, Eric betrays them again by by going off to warn the the aliens. And there's there's a daring escape through a sewer, I think. And that's where House Abdu does his epic move of holding all everything everybody up. In the moment of passion, because he is basically the wall at that point. Were they hanging off a draining drainage ditch of some sort, or a draining corridor, or pipe? Yeah, it was a draining pipe, wasn't it? That sounds yeah, it possible. Drain. Yeah, it's it like was, a, drain a was definitely the word that came up. Yeah, this yeah. Is, see, this is this is where like listening to the audiobook is kind of an advantage because I can just zone out when it becomes uh, tedious. Yeah, I feel kind of bad for for tr- covering this portion as lightly as we seem inevitably to be doing, because again, I think this is the most Dungeons and Dragonsy part of the story. Sure. Uh, you, know, you have this overland trek with wilderness encounters. You have what amounts to a dungeon crawl, getting through the uh, through the city. There's a there's a couple of combats. There's the fairly interesting problem of the drain and escaping and so forth. And um, yet the right, only thing is, I can think of is that Giles... we managed to get all the way through here without mentioning Giles Habdullah's bottle of wine. 
I, oh, I was, was, was about to. Which was I'm, my I'm, favorite character the in the whole Musketeer. book. Was that bottle of wine? I was so sad when it died. <laughs> yeah, you can see Giles. So was Giles, man. Like, no, was, you can probably hear it. I didn't realize until the bottle of wine died <laughs> that it was the only character that I had built an emotional connection to. <laughs> I was I was half expecting that they would find that that bottle of wine at at, at the bottom of of the sewer as 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 they were they were calling out, but but the bottle of wine never never comes comes back, does it? Yeah, yeah. Just to to uh, to make it clear to the person who is listening to this, if if anybody is, um, at when they leave the spaceship and they make this trek, Giles insists on bringing along uh, a bunch of wine. When they get out of the ship and they get washed ashore, they've lost all of the wine except for one bottle. Giles refuses to open up and drink that bottle because he figures once he's opened it up, it's gone. And he wants to save it for when he really needs it, uh, either in celebration or mourning or, or what have you. So he holds on to it. And then for you know, the whole of the trek, he is constantly harping on this bottle of wine and how he is not opening it, how he is holding on to it, how he's saving it. And then he goes and drops it down the freaking drain. <sighs> so yeah. sad. I, so I, sad. I actually kind of wanted that to be uh, uh, turn out to be a secret weapon against the aliens. Like, you know, the, the <laughs> yeah, so you know, it's, it's, uh, For Akka to work, you really need a wine cork. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just, just the notion that, you know, suddenly the, the, the wine would hit them and, and, and it would melt their flesh or something. <laughs> was kind of what I was hoping for. It felt very much like the Chekhov's gun in that, you know, was, you keep talking about it. It's got to be important. Yeah, it was it was very much a a Chekhov's gun that just did not go off. So sad. Yeah. So sad. That wine bottle never had a chance, guys. It never, yeah. never had a chance. I, I think I, I think I'm going to drink a bottle of wine in, in memorial when we're done. Well, it's and, only the first book, maybe there's a side quest. So I I completely missed how they made it back to the Purple Dream and took took off again. It does gliding. Matter. Oh, actually they didn't. Adam actually manages to convince the aliens to rescue his ship, which is why it ends up back on the Tar platform. Aha. Whereas the the MacGuffin Princess and John Starr basically manage to get out on their own, where the other three have to take their own route to get out there. And he gets into an epic fight with one of those giant dragonfly thingies in order to do so. Then once they kill it, they basically eat, you know feast on it, for lack of a better term. And then they know they have to go back to the place in order to get the ship. So that's when we have a scene that's straight out of Cave Dwellers, of all things, where they basically build an impromptu hang glider to get back to the location. That's right, the hang glider. Yeah. Again, I want to say we're making the story sound so much better than it is. I don't hear hang glider and think, "Oh, this is a hang glider story." That's going to be fun to read. It's not going to be fun to read. No. I kind of pulls it out of his ass because you know we've never mentioned this before, and suddenly the main hero is a really good hang glider. What? Uh, and he all... knows how to make a hang glider from uh, from random junk, including dead parts of dragonflies. Dead parts of dragonflies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's not a good story. <laughs> All right, so so our our heroes have managed to to all get back to the ship. Uh, I, I think Eric is is finally killed at some point. I don't really re- remember. Oh, Adam, Adam kills- doesn't die till the third. Sack. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Adam Adam kills Eric. Yeah, he, uh, Eric explained what he did, and Adam went right. I'm killing you now. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, uh, he has a certain sense of honor. And Adam <laughs> Adam dies himself at some point. I can't remember. Yeah, I, I think he, he, he sacrifices himself, actually. It's, yeah, it's a heroic sacrifice, as I recall. Yeah. Once we get back to Earth, we'll go into more details. So... We, we've, we've learned from Eric that while our heroes were crossing the continent, the, the aliens had already started their conquest of the solar system. And by the time the Purple Dream gets back to the solar system, all, all nine planets are covered with this, with this red gas, and humanity is, slow, is slowly dying. It's a real shambles, yeah. Right. Yeah. And they've all taken stock on the moon as they prepare their invasion. And I'm not, I'm really not sure at this point how how the aliens have not just won and humanity isn't wiped out if they've managed to cover all the planets with this with this killing gas. But apparently there there's enough humans that are still alive to rebuild civilization after this. Yeah, there's this great come from behind victory where uh, what's her name Princess Peach uses Akka to to blow up the moon. I, or I think blow up part of the moon. It's Princess MacGuffin. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, so, is the correct term, I think. The the heroes get 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 to Earth. There's there's a brief skirmish with uh, super mutants from from uh, Fallout. Yeah, well, that's, that's kind of out of nowhere. Actually, what's kind of interesting is you can already see the they kind of set it up a little bit here because everybody was going straight raving mad on the ship, both John and the princess, and they were starting to develop those weird scales on their body here. And this, I would say, is the closest we get to the concept of the Abolis being a cross-reference because it feels like they're almost turning into scum if you want to use the same creatures. Like, they're literally being reforged by their alien overlords. Yeah. Even if it's only, you know, even if it's only tangentially because they're yeah. just basically yeah. pumping the air full of red gas. So, yeah. So, so John runs into what is, what is basically a, a big guy who's been turned into a green monster by this, by this gas a, a green flesh eating eating uh, eating monster. Uh, there's, there's probably one a... last action scene where where they right. fight. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, at, at at some point, Princess Peach has been knocked un- unconscious, and she's the only one who can build a a a, a car, but but she needs she needs an, an an iron nail. So that's that's the reason that 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 John is fighting this this green monster. It's, it's yeah, just it, looking for iron. It turns out you can make this super weapon that's capable of destroying entire planets out of whatever random junk you have in your pocket, provided that you have an iron nail. And and provided you you know the secret. Yes. Mm-hmm. <sighs> it's not a but, good story. But well, I I I, <laughs> yeah, I don't what was the iron piece actually found. That's my question. I. I don't think it's, it's, it's he finds it's, a crashed toy airplane with a uh, with an iron shaft in the middle of it. Yeah. I don't know why a crashed toy airplane. I don't know why, but that's what he finds. Well, iron iron is is is, is only the final com- component. We don't we don't really know what what the rest of the machine is is made is is made of. But Except they're radio parts. John... Except that it's random junk that she finds on the ship. <laughs> Yeah. John gets gets back and and wakes up the princess by kissing her and telling her that he he uh, of lo- he does. loves her. He's and, the hero. Uh, she's she's already built the device, which which is this really light handheld thing, and she puts the nail in it and and turns it on and and without without even lighting up or making any kind of explosion, she just erases the moon from existence. Along with all the Medusae that are are on the moon, and this is this is what defeats the bad guys. 
If this yeah. sounds cool to you, rest assured it was not cool when we were reading it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, yeah, even and... that didn't even sound cool, honestly. <laughs> well, the problem is, you destroyed the moon. Well done. What about the side effects? She she turns it on. The the, the moon is gone. The, the aliens are gone. All the red gas is gone. Humanity has, has won. Uh, presumably all the people whose flesh was being eaten by this, by this gas, they're suddenly better. And we, we, we flash forward to like a year later. Uh, the green hall has been rebuilt. Uh, John Ulnar is now John Starr. He kisses. Everybody gets a medal. <laughs> Everybody yep. gets a medal. He kisses Chewy, the like bellows and all of the soldiers do it. I do a, do a face front in unison exactly. and they all grin and we, we iris out. And, and and the last line of the story is Giles complaining. Of course. Well, yes, as it should be, honestly. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 almost like this 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 porky pig. That's all, folks. But it's it's Giles saying, "Let's let's go get a dr- a, a drink of wine." <laughs> well, to be fair, he kind of earned it after the one that he sacrificed. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, so sad. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> So I, again, I just want to say, for the record, this is not a very good story by the standards that I, a reader in 2015, have for my fiction. I I thought the 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 audiobook did a very good good job. The 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 narrator gave it a a, a hundred ten ten per, per, per cent. Mm-hmm. He he every single one of Giles's lines. He he read with 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 relish, and 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 a plum, and a ton of personality. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I'm going to if I'm going to look at this story and draw one thing from it and say this is something that I could apply to Dungeons and Dragons, it would be Giles Habila. It would you know take take that character Falstaff, just turn it up to eleven, chew the scenery. <laughs> Project to the back rows, and you'll have a memorable NPC. I yeah. was, I was. Giles actually reminded me of of every time uh, Ed Greenwood gets interviewed. <laughs> and that's awesome. <laughs> well, let me let me finish my my comment. Every every time Ed Greenwood is interviewed about the Forgotten Realms, he he always says that that the first character that existed in the Forgotten Realms was this character Mert the Moneylender, mm. who's this fat, wheezing old merchant. Because Ed Ed was familiar with the with the square jawed pulp hero and he wanted a hero who was kind of the 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 opposite. So Mert was this was this fat, wheezing old scoundrel who who just kept running from city to city, you know, c- conducting various schemes. And and I I wonder if if Giles was was not at least a a partial inspiration for this for this Mert character, and Jeff Greiner, if you're if you're listening, uh, next time you 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 interview Ed, maybe maybe you can ask him this this question. Uh, uh, or alternatively, you could ask him to uh, declare mercy me, uh, and uh, uh, bless my life. Bless my life. And ask him for uh, a drink of wine, and Mortal I suspect wine, that I'm, yeah, I, I suspect, I I truly do suspect that Ed Greenwood would be, would be uh, rather game about that whole affair. So, 
Oh, I think I think Ed Ed Greenwood is, if if nothing else, a a man who enjoys his his wine. Um, oh, there was a an interview with Ed Greenwood that I listened to on a podcast. This must have been ten years ago, maybe oh. the Sons of Cryos. Well, then it, oh, it, yeah. it it clearly was not the Tome Show. I don't think, I don't yeah. think the Tome Show existed ten years ago. The yeah, Sons of Cryos has not existed in a long time. I don't think there there are archives of it anywhere even. But uh, it was an interview with Ed Greenwood, and the interviewer was talking about his own Forgotten Realms campaign, and he said that he he hoped that Ed would not be offended. But the very first thing that happened in his Forgotten Realms campaign was that the big bad guy came down from uh, came up from hell or down from the sky or whatever and just killed the out of Elminster and Elminster was dead his head was on a pike outside Waterdeep everybody knew it and that was his sign that the uh, that the Forgotten Realms was was not going to be a place where Elminster came and, and rescued you and Ed Greenwood's response to that, uh, which I'll always remember, was that that was wonderful. That was ideal. Ed Greenwood really did not care that much for Elminster as a character. Mm-hmm. Elminster was originally just a mouthpiece for lore. Mm-hmm. He was a guy that Ed invented so that when you were in the dungeon, Elminster could pop up and explain that those carvings actually dated from the fifth Dwarven Empire, and yet these other carvings were from the seventh Dwarven Empire and wasn't that interesting, and then leave again. And somehow Elminster had turned into this symbol of you know, sort of drunken excess. Uh, when there were so many other aspects of the Forgotten Realms that would be so much more fitting symbols of drunken excess, and I say that with affection, uh, and it, it really had, I, I've always had a soft spot for, uh, for Ed Greenwood ever since I, I heard that interview. Mm, the, 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 the one thing I've, I've, I've taken away from all the interviews that I've, I've listened to with, with, with Ed is, is, is that he's, 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 he's an awesome guy and, and he's, he's not the guy that people tend to think that he, that, uh, that he is. And, I, and he, he would much rather be writing the further adventures of Mert the Moneylender than all these L. Minster novels. Yeah, he's he's a storyteller and a character in and of himself, and I think uh, that's the part that sort of sticks out about him, and and, and that's why I say he'd probably go along with uh, doing his Giles Habibula uh, impression uh, pretty readily because he'd think it was you know good fun. Um, but yeah, I, I think we're all in agreement. This is not a great story. Mm-hmm. I, I at least think it's a good story, and I, I enjoyed the audiobooks. So. And again, I, Giles is the only reason to read this, and he literally runs away with the ball. It's, uh, it's certainly more uh, style than substance. I like the style of the story more than I liked the story. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but uh, and, and Giles is certainly a, a, a big part of that. It's filled with things that drive me crazy. Uh, mm-hmm. Plot hook. Yeah. You mean you mean plot hole? Yeah. The the uh, beyond the 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 actual science stuff in a science fiction story, which occasionally is a pet peeve for me. Uh, the the you know the 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 female character is so uh, underwritten that. 
we could reasonably call her Princess MacGuffin. And she basically would, doesn't exist. Yeah. yeah, she doesn't exist. All of the uh, other characters don't seem to have existing motivations and uh, uh, structures to th- their decision-making, except for Giles and, to a certain extent, John. Um, and, and so it's not a great story, uh, and there's not a lot that you can take from it as good storytelling advice. Um, There's a lot of little stylistic flips that I would really like to like. There's, you know, the weird choice to have John Olnar be referred to as John Starr by the third-person narration. There's the the setup of John Starr going to this uh, remote Martian base he doesn't know why he's there. He, I mean, he understands that he's guarding Akka, but he doesn't know the, understand the details or context of that. And the crew at the at this remote base are these, you know, bizarre misfits. You have Giles with his constant false staffing, and like I said a while back, how Sam do when he appears? He's wearing a uniform that uh, he had commissioned just in case he ever gets promoted to Grand Marshal of Space. And um, then there's the, there's all of these things that then don't go anywhere, or get ideas that get raised and abandoned, or introduced in a kind of a backwards way. And the actual structure is just so plodding and formulaic. Yeah, it, it, it definitely well, reads like a like a like an early novel. He he made a lot of mistakes. I I hopefully he learned from them later in his career. Chris, what were you going to say? Well, I'd say one of his biggest literary advantages in the area is he really does use color well. Like, I would say throughout the story, even if the stereotype itself is actually kind of basic, he does love playing with color that actually does help with your mind. Like, when I was reading this entire story, I kept having flashbacks to the old 60s cartoon Rocket Robin Hood when I was reading this because it almost had the same feel to it when it came down to it. Well, the 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 entire alien planet. I was I was imagining a a old NES eight bit side scroller because because like like the ocean's yellow and the sky is red. I don't mm-hmm. I don't know why I had that actually that particular image. So just maybe, maybe pretend I didn't say that. No, not quite the opposite. It felt like one big adventure. <laughs> You're going from point A to point B, just like the story. Yeah, I, from a lessons for D and D standpoint, there are, are a couple of them you could do there. Uh, how to create a, a truly alien environment they do a fairly decent job of making an environment that is uh alien and unpleasant and mm-hmm. uh, uh and describing a a, a a land that really y- your adventurers may have to cross but they really don't want to <laughs> um nobody uh, ever communicates with the medusa directly on screen that we the readers get to see mm-hmm. which uh, goes a long way towards making them seem more alien than they would if they showed up on the view screen and ranted. Instead, you have uh, Adam Olnar and Eric Olnar doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and honestly, honestly, it's better than any novel I've ever written. So, <laughs> I don't know. I guess if you had to make like an adaptation of this and you were trying to redo the Medusa, I guess you could almost think of them as... I hate to say it, but my visual representation, I could see if you made it like on the cheap, they'd be basically plastic bags made with a series of tentacles on them. You basically fill them full of air and then just sort of bounce them around. 
rover. Uh, careful, exactly. Doctor Doctor Who might 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 uh, get uh, get some 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 I- I- ideas. If your if your if if your ideas can travel back in time to 1974. Well, uh, I, I actually, it's Doctor Who, so it could trademark then. All right then. Okay. Well, I'm 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 going to be a bit more generous than than you guys. I I didn't. It it, it 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 is not a great story, but I I didn't hate it. I I thought the aliens were cool, especially their their round black spiky spaceships. Um, I I liked Adam Adam Olnar. Um, you know he's by by the standards of the stories we've been reading, he's he's a fairly complicated character. I I even liked uh, Eric Ol- Olnar as as problematic as he was. He like I I was instantly reminded of of anime villains. Uh, and I, my my advice to readers, if if you're reading the the printed copy, just just imagine the voice of Philip J. Fry whenever whenever John Starr is speaking, and uh, imagine the voice of Zoidberg whenever Giles. Uh, Habibula is speaking, and you should be able to get through the book just just fine. <laughs> well, again, the environment actually is kind of fun. It'd be a fun role playing environment when you think about it. The planet, because you got those exotic colors, you got the strange monsters. Mm-hmm. In many ways, it feels almost like a Gamma World game because you got the exotic bugs, you got the red gas that basically drives you insane, and of course, you got the giant aberration land of the hovering things with drain pipes. Rewritten as a just a, an, an adventure module, it would probably be a pretty memorable adventure module. There'd be some good set pieces and some memorable NPCs. Sure. Travel travel across a dangerous continent to a giant black city full of full of aliens to rescue a princess or a MacGuffin or a princess MacGuffin, whatever whatever the DM decides. All right, I. I think we've we've summarized this story. We've we've dis- we've discussed its its flaws, and we've dis- we've we've picked out the things that we that we like about it. Does anyone have any any last words that that haven't been said already to say about the Legion of Space? I feel like my hostility to the story stems in part from um, expectations mismatch. The prologue and first chapter set up things that never really pay off. So while this story is probably better than um, Pirates of Venus, oh, nevertheless, yeah. nevertheless, I, I resented this story more than Pirates of Venus. Mm, and I, think I don't that's think I can resent any story from. more than Pirates of Venus. Uh, I, is that a challenge? Because I've got uh, Atlanta Nights, I can send you a copy. I mean, there's a whole internet out there. If you look <laughs> for it, you can find the worst fan fiction. Agreed. You can you can probably find Legions of Space fan fiction. Probably. Right. Uh, but no, I, I think that uh, we probably spent more time on this story than it deserves. <laughs> <laughs> but it 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 was a fun discussion. All right. Uh, Chris, where on the web can people find you? Well, you can find me on my blog at drevrpg.blogspot.ca, where I write it for my RPG I wrote called Dark Revelations, a role-playing game. August is bug month. 
Awesome. Jeremiah, where on the web can people find you? Um, well, uh, I've got a few places. Uh, the basics of the game dot WordPress dot com is the site where I post all of my uh, audio podcasts and my uh, uh, a lot of my YouTube uh, videos as well. Uh, and I, you know, you could of course or subscribe to those individually through your podcatcher and YouTube of choice. And finally, Jeff, if people don't already know. Where on the web can people find you? People can find me at jeffwick.com, arguably the best site on the internet. I, I, I would argue in your, in your favor. All right, folks, we hope you enjoyed our discussion. If you did not enjoy our discussion but for some reason are still listening, you can tell us all about it by sending an email to thetomeshow at gmail.com. Send us your questions, send us your comments. We would really like to hear from you. Put Appendix N in the subject line. Next episode, we will discuss three more tales of weird fiction by H.P. Lovecraft, The Whisperer in Darkness, Shadow Over Innsmouth, and Dreams in the Witch House. After that, we return to the savage world of Conan. Join us as we discuss the people of the Black Circle, A Witch Shall Be Born, and Jewels of Gwalur. These stories are public domain and should be freely available on the web. This has been a Tome Show production of Appendix N, Episode 23, The Legion of Space, by Jack Williamson. Thanks for listening.